or a headmaster or head of school in a private school. They're the ones that lead the school. So we still use that term head to refer to leadership even today. But we need to clarify that the term leader or head can refer to either a position, like the head of a household, or it can refer to the ability to lead or the the quality of leadership. What we might refer to as a, a, a person who's a natural leader has this ability to lead. That's different from the position of leadership. And I, what I mean is a, a person can have, be in the position of leader and yet at the same time be a, loudy, a lousy leader. Right? Just because they have the position doesn't mean that have, they have the skill. Even in the Bible, there are many leaders who were terrible at leadership. But they were nonetheless leaders. Think of Aaron, Moses' brother. The first high priest. Or when... You recall that when Moses went up uh, to Mount Sinai to receive the rest of the law, Aaron was put in charge of all of Israel. And while Moses is gone, he leads all of Israel in the construction of a golden calf. And then when Moses comes back and confronts him, instead of taking ownership of it, as a responsible leader should do, he blames the people. Later on, he joins his sister Miriam in criticizing Moses. We also know he failed to instruct his own sons well because Nadab and Abihu become some of the first, uh, they, they are the first priests that are killed by God because they offered up strange fire, not following the instructions that God gave. Well, that was Aaron's responsibility to clearly instruct them. Keep going through scripture. The whole point of the book of Judges is that the judges get increasingly worse. Like the people, they keep doing what is wise in their own eyes. Samson's the last judge, but he's the worst of all. You see that pattern throughout. Then there's Eli and his wretched sons. Because of their wickedness, the the ark is lost to the Philistines. Eventually, King Saul becomes king, but he's a terrible king. In fact, almost all the kings of Israel and Judah were terrible leaders. Even when you get to the New Testament, the high priest, Caiaphas, is the one who leads in the the condemnation of Christ. Pontius Pilate, the governor, knows that Christ is innocent, and yet he still has him executed. So the consequences of bad leadership, it's actually a prolific theme in the Bible. It's not hard to find bad leaders in the Bible. But there's also good leaders as well that speak of men, even though they lacked the position of leadership, they were good leaders. And because of the quality of their life, they inspire others to follow them. Think of young David. Teenage boy shows up at the camp, hears Goliath boasting. None of the other men will take on Goliath's boast. But David has absolute confidence and uh, pleads with King Saul for the opportunity. And, of course, God in his grace allows David to overcome Goliath. But he wasn't in a position of leadership. He shouldn't even been there. But it's because of all the failed leadership, David steps up. And because of that, David becomes, by the quality of his person, one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. And there's, of course, Joseph, who, though a slave, he rises through the ranks in the greatest nation at that time, Egypt eventually becomes 
the second in command only to Pharaoh himself. And the Bible emphasizes because God was with Joseph and it allowed him to be successful. He inspired uh, people to follow him and to trust him. Daniel also was raised to a high level of leadership because of his wisdom. It says in Daniel 6.3, Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. It was, he, he earned that position because he was a good leader. And so what, what I'm trying to emphasize here is, again, leadership can refer to a position or it can refer to a quality. And in Ephesians 5.23, when it declares that men are to be the leaders of their home, it's referring to the position. God has appointed men to that position of leadership. It doesn't say they're going to be good leaders. It doesn't say they're going to be bad leaders. It's just they have that responsibility. In fact, a, a man's wife might be a better leader, but God has appointed men to that position of leadership, not because of some inherent quality, but simply because he has established that order in creation. But I want you also to note this, that both aspects of leadership, whether referring to the position or the skill of leadership, can be summed up in one word. And that word is responsibility. And what I mean is this. Even those who are in a position of leadership are responsible. Even if they lack responsibility as a character trait, God's character trait, God still holds them responsible for everything that takes place under their watch. So even if they don't accept that responsibility and they even blame others for their own failures, the fact of the matter is they're still responsible. That position means they're responsible for everything that happens. But those skilled in leading others are good at their leadership also precisely because of their responsibility. That it's the responsible person that ends up being a quality leader because they commit themselves toward an objective and in doing so they inspire others to follow them. And there may be other aspects that, that, that also enable a person to be a good leader, but the primary one is responsibility. It's the essence of good leadership. And in the rest of this message today, I just want to discuss these principles from a biblical perspective. That both aspects of leadership, the, the positional aspect as well as the um, quality aspect of responsibility. So we'll look first at the positional leadership and then at good leadership, the, the ability to lead well. Uh, looks like there's a little bit of a delay on that. Positional leadership... Point here is God holds those in the position of leadership accountable. Uh, people often wonder why is it that Adam was held responsible for sin coming into the world when he wasn't the first one to sin. It was first Satan, right? He tempted Eve. And in fact, it wasn't even Adam first who ate of the fruit. It was Eve first, and then she gave some to Adam. So why is Adam held responsible? It's because God placed Adam in the garden as the leader of the garden. He was, in other words, responsible for everything that took place. It says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin 
came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Point being, Adam is the one that let sin into the world because he was called to both protect the garden and serve in the garden or worship in the garden. And he failed. And therefore he's held accountable. This principle of leaders being held accountable because their position is taught multiple times in Scripture. In Ezekiel 34, God calls out the, the, the nation of Israel because of their idolatry and their wickedness. But in Ezekiel 34, he holds the, the shepherds of Israel, referring to the priests and the kings, as responsible. And he says because of Israel's failure, he's going to take it out on the leaders because they're responsible. You think of Moses. He was account, held accountable for striking the rock, even though he was provoked to strike the rock because the, the, lead, the, the people of Israel were grumbling and complaining again. And he was angry at them for their sin. And yet, he was also held accountable for that sin. Because as a leader, he should have known better. And so he, unlike all those grumbling and complaining Israelites, he alone was not allowed to enter the promised land. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. And it qualifies this saying, as those who will have to give an account. Point being is a person in leadership is going to have to give an account for the souls of those who are under their care. They're accountable. Not just the individual soul, but the leader of those souls. Here, of course, it's referring to pastors and elders. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because they will incur a stricter judgment. Matthew 18.5 Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, Jesus says. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Why? Because by virtue of their age, they have an influence on these younger ones, and therefore they will be held to a higher account for that. And they will, ha- they will pay a, a much higher price for their failure to, because they were leading others astray. And the same principle still applies in our homes. So if a, if a family is struggling, who does God hold accountable? The men. The man. And God is aware of your wife's sins, your children's sins, but he will hold you men responsible for whatever is taking place within your home. And to illustrate this, consider a young sailor who disobeys his captain orders and he collides with another ship in the middle of the night. Even though the captain was asleep, he had nothing to do with it. It's the captain who will be held responsible for uh, that collision. The the, the young sailor might be about to get out of the Navy in a few months. It's hardly going to be a a blip on his life, but it, it ruins the captain's career. The captain did nothing except he was responsible. And the Navy's going to hold him responsible. You might say, well, that's not fair. And that's true. It's not fair. It's responsibility. God's not interested so much in fairness, but in responsibility. When he puts a person in a position of leadership, 
It's a position of responsibility, of accountability. Just like it wasn't fair for Jesus to pay the price for our sins. He was innocent. But because he was responsible, he was a good leader, he did bear our responsibility. And by that, we have been given the opportunity to be reconciled with God. Doug Wilson writes this in his book, Reforming Marriage, one of the best books on marriage I've read. Quote, because the husband is the head of the wife, he finds himself in the position of inescapable leadership. He cannot successfully refuse to lead. Even if he attempts to abdicate in some way, he may, through his rebellion, lead poorly. But no matter what he does or where he goes, he does so as the head of his wife. This is how God designed marriage. He has created us male and female in such a way as to ensure that men will always be dominant in marriage. If the husband is godly, then that dominance will not be harsh. It will be characterized by the same self-sacrificial love demonstrated by our Lord, dominus, the Latin word for Lord, at the cross. If a husband tries to run away from headship, that abdication will dominate the home. If he catches a plane to the other side of the country and stays there, he will dominate in and by his absence. How many children have grown up in a home dominated by the empty chair at the table? If the marriage is one in which the wife wears the pants, the wimpiness of the husband is the most obvious thing about the marriage, creating a miserable marriage and home. His abdication dominates. The point is, whether they like it or not, the moment they get married, the husband is in the position of responsibility. Even if he doesn't want to take the responsibility, he is still responsible. And if he doesn't take that responsibility, his failure, his abdication is what's going to dominate in the home. And therefore, it's going to hurt the home. This is just the way God has designed marriages to work. And so you can, you can actually see how the, the, our tendency as Americans to embrace a, a victim mentality, how destructive such a mindset can be on a marriage and in a home. Because once a man decides that he's the victim of his wife's sin, or he's the victim of his, uh, the hours that he, has to work at, uh, that he has to work, or he's the victim of, of the media, or whatever it is, the, the, the moment he may, identifies himself as a victim, is, is, he's basically abdicating his leadership to whatever, whatever he thinks he's victimized by. Because that now is what's going to dominate the home, not his leadership. And so one of, the, one of the worst things we could do as men is to throw up our hands and say, it's not my fault. Well, even if we're not the one that has caused it, we're responsible to fix it. To do whatever we can to rectify the situation that we see. A victim mentality will completely destroy one's leadership. So whether, again, we like it or not, leadership means bearing full responsibility. But the position of head means responsibility. Which means, uh, ladies, if you're single, the one thing that you should be looking for in a husband is a sign that they're responsible. First and foremost, for themselves. 
that they don't blame others for their failures or weaknesses or excuses. They own up to whatever happens. But even more so, what you should be looking for is a young man who takes responsibility for others. And if they don't take responsibility, your marriage to them will be miserable, no matter how big their bank account is or no matter how big their biceps are. And likewise, young men, learn to bear responsibility. Instead of wasting your time and trying to be impressive to ladies, work on being responsible. Take on ownership of things. Look for opportunities to lead. And just start by cleaning your room, turning your homework in on time, uh, looking for things that need to be done, not just waiting for people to come tell you or ask you to do things. If you see a need, l- learn to take initiative and, and meet that need. Don't just wait for somebody to, to cry for help. If you see a need, take it. And, and learn to do that because that's what you're going to have to do as a leader in your home. Because if you don't do it, your home will be ruined. And you will be held accountable, and you should. And so we need to learn responsibility before we even get married. And of course, afterwards as well. And so according to the Bible, those placed in the position of leadership are those who are held responsible. So we've talked about the position of leadership. Now I want to talk about the the quality or skill of leadership. And what I mean... uh, by this is, is often what we people mean when they talk about a good leader. But because we're Christians, we don't, we're not interested so much in what the world defines as a good leader, but what does the Bible say a good leader looks like? So another word for good leadership is biblical leadership. So what is biblical leadership? How would a man know if they're good at leading their home or if they're bad? The man is the leader of the home. Are they good or are they bad? How would they know? So that's what I want to look at now. And in, the, and in next week. And I, and, I, and I want to unpack this because I want every man here to understand not just that they're appointed to lead their families, but I want you to understand what good leadership looks like in your family, according to the Bible. And at this point, I have six principles that I wanted to discuss, but I'm only going to be able to get to the first. And the rest we'll look at next week. And the first principle I've identified that the Bible speaks to of good leadership is that of responsibility. All the other biblical principles of good leadership really flow from this one, responsibility. Other, other principles I'll identify, men provide, they protect, they're committed, they're active, they're humble, But all these are subsidiary principles to this one principle of responsibility. They flow from responsibility. And one encouragement in in this is one does not have to be a, uh, a certain personality type to be a good leader. Right? You don't have to be a type A. You don't have to get a degree in leadership. You don't have to read books. Anybody can be responsible. Right, so this is not something that's outside of you that you can't attain. It's something we can all attain to, men and women. 
And so we should take encouragement in this. We can be good leaders. And what I mean by uh, biblical responsibility is that, that biblical leaders take ownership. In other words, whatever happens in the home is on them. They don't make excuses. They don't blame others. They don't wallow in self-pity. They take responsibility. Jocko Willink writes in his book, Extreme Ownership, it's a great book on leadership, says this, The leader must own everything in his or her world. There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. The best leaders don't just take responsibility for their job. They take extreme ownership over everything that impacts their mission. Again, you see that instance of responsibility. They're not just thinking about themselves. They're thinking about anything that affects what they're called to do. Likewise, a Christian man is not just thinking about, am I doing my job? Am I going to work? Am I bringing home a paycheck? No, they're thinking about, I'm called to live for Christ, and I'm responsible for at least my family. How well is my family doing that? Not just am I doing my job, but how well are my kids doing their job? How well is my wife flourishing? Is she a fruitful vine? Are my kids like olive plants, as we saw in uh, Psalm 128 a few weeks ago? And this doesn't just mean that they accept blame. It means if they're truly responsible, they were already proactively looking for ways to avoid problems from occurring. So it's not just that they don't, it's not just that they take the blame for other people's failures, but when a failure occurs, they keep going to figure out how to address the problem. They, they don't make excuses for problems because they're, they're, not, they're not interested in just defending themselves or blaming another person. They're, what they're interested in is solving the problem. It's not about a reputation their reputation, their family's reputation, it's about honoring God. And therefore, what are, they, what are they doing actively to solve the problems within their home? So it doesn't mean that they deny the reality that a problem has happened, or they don't pretend that nobody else has sinned. No, they may admit it. They may and should probably confront sin if it's taken place. But again, they're, they're mostly concerned with finding a solution, rectifying the situation. The, the responsible leaders are still honest about their failures and the failures of others, but they seek solutions, not just blame. And just think of how Nehemiah took ownership of Israel's failure during the exile. Israel repeatedly hardened their heart against God's exhortations through the prophets again and again and again. They end up in exile and Nehemiah grows up in exile, and as a cupbearer, he finds, he recognizes that the reason they're in exile is because of Israel's sin. But instead of just being angry with the Israelites, he responds by going to the Lord and praying and confessing their sin and his own culpability uh, in the exile as well. This is what he says in Nehemiah 1.4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, Oh, Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now may pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, 
confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah realizes that, the, that the, the Jerusalem is in ruins on account of Israel's sin. And instead of just blaming Israel, the other people, he takes ownership for it and confesses their sin before God. And not only does he do that, he takes action, uh, risking his life by going before the king and requesting permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And he's given permission. God blessed him for it. But my point is, is, is that he didn't just write a letter and say, guys, we're in this mess because you're at fault. He takes ownership of it and then takes action to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And God blesses him for it. Biblical leaders are responsible because their highest concern is how they can best honor God and do what's best for those whom they're responsible for. They lay down their interests because they want to meet the interests of others whom they are responsible for. They want to protect the interests of others. Just think about how Philemon responded, uh, or Paul responded uh, in the book of Philemon, to Philemon, right? He, 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 uh, the slave Onesimus had, had left Philemon, and Paul wants Philemon to know if there's been any cost that's been incurred by his departure, he takes responsibility for it. He says in verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Like Paul so wants Onesimus to be reconciled with Philemon. He says, whatever cost is there, charge it to me. Like That's what a leader does. He doesn't just order something that gets to be done, which Paul could have done. He, he pleads, but he says, hey, whatever is necessary for this progress to be made in this, rec- in this relationship... Take it out of me. I'm responsible. And I think this principle of responsibility is most clearly seen in Scripture, though, by contrasting Adam and his failure to be responsible with Christ and his uh, success, his faithfulness and his responsibility. In the beginning, God created everything good. And after God creates everything, uh, particularly after he created man, he said that, that things were very good. And then Adam was given dominion, which means rule, leadership over the garden. He was to lead in the garden. And therefore, that would include Eve as well, when God had created her. He was told to guard and to serve in the garden, Genesis 2.15. Again, serve is actually a worship term. It's the same word used to describe what the priest did in the tabernacle. A minister might be a good translation. And then Adam's given this responsibility to lead and to serve, to protect, to guard. But we see in chapter 3 that Adam fails in each of these responsibilities. Adam tolerates Satan into the garden, failing to guard the garden and his wife. He follows Eve in her sin rather than leading her away from the temptation. And he then even sins with her. And so he fails in his responsibility to worship. And then, when he's confronted by God for this failure, he blames Eve. 
he fails to take responsibility, though he's the responsible one. He throws her under the bus. And then, of course, Eve just follows his pattern and blames Satan. But God holds all of them accountable for their sin, but ultimately he holds Adam accountable. Right? Romans 5.12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, not through woman, not through Satan, through one man, Adam was responsible. And he failed. But Christ, the second Adam, or last Adam, as he's described in 1 Corinthians 15, succeeds where Adam failed. And he succeeds particularly because he took responsibility for the problem. Romans 5, 6 says this, you know it. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. He took responsibility. He he bore our sins, the penalty for our sins, though he was innocent. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ took responsibility where Adam failed and then fulfilled the mission that Adam failed in and then enabled Adam to actually fulfill his created purpose. Christ not only paid the price, but he restored mankind to his original purpose of worshiping God. And that will be finally realized, as we read earlier in Revelation 21, when God creates the new heavens and new earth. Christ took responsibility and therefore he fulfilled the mission that God had given man. And Christians are then called to follow in his footsteps. 2 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. And that's instruction given to all Christians. This is what Christians are called to do. To suffer if necessary. To follow him. Paul specifically applies Christ-like leadership as the example in how to lead in the home. Right? Ephesians 5. We'll look at this in a few weeks. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, that's how we're supposed to lead. Through sacrifice. Taking responsibility. Doing whatever. Giving up. Losing Bearing shame, bearing the humiliation, even if we're not the ones that have brought the shame into the family, we're responsible for it. And we love our family by bearing responsibility and doing whatever we can to make it right. We don't just point the finger, we own it. Doesn't mean we don't confront, but we own it as our problem. And many have wondered, well... What should Adam have done when Eve decided to take the fruit? I mean, she'd already sinned. She was already condemned to die. I mean, wasn't wasn't it just loving of Adam to join her in her fate that, that at least she wouldn't be destroyed by sin alone? I mean, what else could Adam have done after she sinned? 
Well, it's, it's noteworthy that the words that describe Adam, again, are the same words to describe the function of priests in the tabernacle. And there's very good reason to believe that because Adam was in the role of the high priest of the garden, as such, he should have, like Christ, offered to pay the penalty for Eve's sin. And when he saw that his wife had eaten the fruit, he should have gone to the Lord and said, she sinned, but take my life. But instead of sacrificially serving her, he followed her. And he doomed her and all of their descendants. But thanks be to God that Christ was willing to take the responsibility. Christ became the perfect man and he succeeded where Adam failed. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And therefore, because of Christ, we can have hope even if we have absolutely failed in our responsibility to lead. Because neither God's love, nor our salvation, nor our hope is tied to how well we lead. God doesn't love us because of how good a leaders we are. Our salvation isn't tied to how successful we are. Or how well people like us. And our hope isn't tied to those things either. All of these are ours completely and permanently because Christ has purchased them for us. So we might have failed abysmally in our leadership, but Christ has paid the penalty for those failures also. And therefore we can have hope. It, the, the, the story's not done. The sin has been paid for. All we need to do to admit where we failed, trust Christ for his forgiveness, delight in Christ for his forgiveness, and seek to move forward. And so if you want to improve in your leadership in the home, just start there. Look to Christ. Trust in him and his forgiveness and trust in his love for you, his power at work within you through the Holy Spirit. And then with that security... Begin to take whatever necessary steps to make your home the home that God has designed it to be. Let's pray. Father, I doubt, I doubt there's any, any person in here who would have the audacity to assume that we have done a good job in leading. Husbands over their families or wives, uh, mothers over their children, employers, over their employees, Lord, we have, we're aware of our shortcomings. But probably not as aware of them as you are. And so we pray just for insight, clarity. What is it that we need to change? What, what practical things can we do to make the steps for our house to be a place of peace, a place of worship, where, it's obvious, where there's an aroma of Christ when, some, when visitors walk through the door, they, they smell Christ. They see the love. They see the, the devotion and the service and the genuineness. And Lord, I pray for, for those who might be discouraged because of failure, that you would encourage them with your love, 
that they wouldn't lose heart. They would, they would cling steadfastly to your steadfast love and find peace and hope in your love for them. We pray these things in Christ's name.